Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30. At the time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Enable us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit to hear the voice of Jesus Christ, and by hearing, may we grow in faith in him. Amen. All right, anyone here like poetry? Does anyone read poetry just sort of for fun? Yeah, a few, few nodding heads. Um, some people know, that's right. I've always found poetry really helpful in sort of firing my imagination, get me sort of thinking outside the box. So here's something that was written uh, from a couple hundred years ago. You can see it up there on the screen. Father-like, he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame he knows. In his hand, he gently bears us, rescues us from all of our foes question. When you think about God, is this the sort of thing you think about? Someone who lovingly tends to our needs, who gently raises us up in his hand. Earlier this year at Village Church, we found that kind of everyone was struggling. Like from your average punter who just rocks up on a Sunday right up through to the staff team, we were all just finding it difficult to put one foot in front of another. I feel like um, the world we sort of woke up to post-pandemic has just been weird. Like it's just been difficult to navigate. I don't think 2022 is any easier than any of the years prior. I think for a lot of people, both well, what we were finding is both inside and outside the church, it causes us to raise a lot of questions or ask a lot of questions about God. Like, who, who is he really? What, what, what is God truly like? And not just in the abstract, not just, you know, questions of God and, and in, you know, in, in the abstract, but more, more specifically, more personally, who is God in relation to us? Like, what does God think and feel about people like me or, or people like you? Where is he when we're hurt or when we're suffering or seemingly stuck in our sin? And that's sort of the emotional climate that birthed, <clears throat> that birthed a little mini-series on the gentleness of Christ. And I want, uh, what I want to do today, I just want to give you the first talk in that series where we really drill down into what God's heart is like. All right, what God's heart is truly like. Now, I'm obviously not going to be able to answer every question you may have about God in a 30-minute talk, um, and I'm not trying to do that. But I am hoping that a talk like this, it might be helpful for you whether you're someone who's uh, maybe grown up in church or been a Christian for a long time, or if you're someone here and you're still sort of on the fence when it comes to considering Jesus, I'm hoping it's, it's helpful for you because I think for all of us, it's quite natural to go through life picking up vague ideas about God or even to fill in the gaps of who he is or what he's like from our own life experiences. 
what can happen when we do that, it can lead us to all sorts of, to, to believe all sorts of unhelpful or even nasty things about God or about humanity or about the world that we live in. And one thing that we were sort of reflecting on was it, it might just be we haven't really stopped to really consider who God is and consider what his heart towards us is like. Like, what's his heart to us people? Uh, so that's why I, I want to start that conversation today. And then Mikey can pick up the pieces afterwards. So thanks, Mikey. Um, but I think, in my opinion, it does raise a much bigger question. And that question is, how can we know what God's heart is truly like? Like, how can we actually access God? And the short answer to that is, the Bible tells us that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. That Jesus himself, he's the visible image of the invisible God. And so, if we want to know who God is really like in his very heart, all we have to do is look to Jesus. Even as we heard Megan read out the Bible passage this morning, Jesus himself says, I will reveal the Father to whomever I choose to reveal him to. So, we look at Jesus, we can look to Jesus to see what God is like. There's kind of two ways we can do that. For starters, we can look at how Jesus lived, right? So the, 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 the Gospels give us four different accounts uh, of the life and death of Jesus, which is really helpful because there's, like, there's quite a lot. I love, I love people watching, sitting in a cafe or a pub and just watching, you know. There's a lot we can learn about people by just observing the way that they live. But another thing I've been reflecting on lately is I think, I reckon we need more than just stories about people to truly understand them. I think we need words, and specifically their own words, because we primarily access people through language. So I'll give you an example of this. I remember one time I was in West End, and I'm about to get to my car, and I see a guy uh, opposite the street of me, and he's peeping into the window of a, of a parked car opposite me. And then he ducks back uh, into a garden bed that was behind his car, picks up a big stone, and he comes back up to his car, well, this car, and he just turbos his stone through the window, right? glass shattering everywhere. I'm like, whoa. And he looks up at me and goes, oh, ha, 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 no, no, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. This, this is my car. Uh, I've locked my keys inside. My dog's inside the car. I gotta, gotta rescue my dog. Now, I'm, I'm hyper-trusting of people. I, I admit, I'll admit it. But like, his story checked out, you know? So his dog pops up from the front seat. He reaches and grabs his keys that were under, under the seat or whatever, and, and, and off he drives, right? We need more than just stories about people. We need words. And, 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 and particularly, we need their own words to sort of interpret or translate their stories and, and who they are. And that's where our passage comes into play today. Because I find this curious, but there's only one place in all four Gospels where Jesus tell up, tells us what he's really like in his very heart, like who he truly is in his core. And it's this place where we catch not just a glimpse of God, but God sort of pulls back the veil and allows us to peer right into the core of his being. All right? We already heard it, but let's, let's put it up on the screen again. It's that part in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, that's my teaching, upon you, and learn from me, for, and here's the statement, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus' own surprising claim about himself is that he's gentle and he's lowly. That's who God is at his very core, the God of the universe. Jesus is gentle. That is, he's not harsh or reactionary. He's not easily exasperated or impatient. Rather, he's the most understanding person in the universe. His most natural posture towards us is not a pointed finger, but open arms. But then also Jesus is 
lowly. Now, the point of, of Jesus saying that he's lowly, it's a way of saying he's accessible, like we can come to him. So for all of God's dazzling glory and holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. He's lowered himself not only to our level, but to the level of the socially outcast, the rejected, the dejected, because that's what he himself was, the God of the universe. He brings himself onto the same playing field as us loose units. The God of the universe, he comes to us gentle and lowly. So now, okay, so we have Jesus' own interpretive words about himself. He's gentle and lowly. We can now look at his life, see stories about him, and see how those things come together, how it plays out in the life of Christ. And here's how I want to do that. I want us to consider two types of people, sufferers and sinners. Because I reckon both sin and suffering, more than anything else, has the potential to sort of skew our perception of God and how it is that we, that we view God. So I'll give you my big idea up front. Uh, If you get anything out of this talk, I want it to be this. When you're suffering and when you stuff up your life, Jesus actually moves closer to you in those moments. He moves closer to you. Far from causing Christ to retreat, our sin, our suffering, it's actually what ignites Christ all the more toward embrace. That That is God's instinct towards you. That's God's instinct towards us. So let's take a closer look at this. Uh, The first thing we want to explore here is Christ's heart for sufferers. Don't know about you, but I reckon nothing, uh, there's nothing quite like suffering that really gets us to the core of a person, and quite quickly often as well. Suffering has this way of, 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 of squeezing our hearts, and what comes dripping out tends to be the essence of who we are. And so I, I'm reminded, for example, of that story that was in the news a couple years ago now. Oh, it's just awful. Um, a drunk driver struck down four kids on the way to get ice cream. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, three of the four kids being siblings, and the heartbroken mom, she gets up on the news, and in the wake of losing the majority of her family in one instant, she gets on air, and... If you remember, she says she forgives the man who's done this. She forgives the man who did it. It's a shocking response. In fact, I remember going into my cafe, the local cafe the next day, uh, speaking to my barista. She said she was actually offended by the mom's response. She was offended, didn't think that it was normal. And I don't know, maybe she's right. Perhaps it's not a normal response. I I don't know. But what I do know is that the parents had a faith in God and a deep sense that even though this tragedy makes no sense. God was still going to bring him through it together. And that's what came squeezing out that day. Suffering has this way of showing us who we really are. We see the same exact thing happening for Jesus himself when he himself is confronted with grief. Here's what I mean by that. Twice in the Bible, we're told that Jesus broke down and wept. You might think, yeah, that makes sense. He suffered a lot. He was crucified. But interestingly, Jesus never cries over his own suffering or his own pain. Rather, in both cases, it is grief over another. And so, for example, in one instance, Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem and her people. And then in another, it's the death of his own friend Lazarus and the impact that it has on their family. And so you sort of ask, what what was Jesus' deepest, deepest anguish? It was the anguish of others. And what drew his heart up to the point of tears? It was the tears of others. And in the story of Lazarus, it really is such a helpful place for us to see this. So if you have one of the church Bibles um, in front of you, just uh, flick over to John chapter 11. So go ahead, a a couple Gospels, John chapter 11. It really is incredible what we find there. So as the story goes, Jesus, he hears word that his friend is sick, but by the time he gets there, he's already died. 
But um, as, as he arrives, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, they rush out to Jesus, meet him on the road outside. And twice in this story, John brings us into the emotional state of Jesus. And so verse 33, Mary, she rushes over to meet Jesus first. When she sees him, she just bursts into tears, just starts weeping. And we're told how Jesus himself became deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And then in verse 35, Jesus joins Mary in her crying. In that famous statement, Jesus wept. Then again, verse 38, Jesus, he's deeply moved again, this time as he stands in the shadow of the tomb of Lazarus. And you kind of ask yourself, what's going on here? Because if you know the story, you might know how it ends. Jesus is just about to call Lazarus back to life. Yeah? Lazarus comes out of the grave. So it can't be that Jesus is so emotional because he misses Lazarus when he knows he's like, what, 10 minutes from having tea with him again. Rather, what we're brought into here is the very real empathy of Jesus for those he loves. Because even though Jesus knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he knows that they don't know, right? The family. And he hates that. He hates the pain that the family and the friends are going through right now. And it's the same for us today. That Jesus is the resurrection and the life, it means that sin, sickness, suffering, even death, it can't, it won't have the final word, the last word, but they still have a word. And for some, they speak many words. It's like when that relationship goes sour, when it feels like life is passing you by, it seems that sort of your one shot of significance is sort of just slipped through your fingers. Or when we can't sort out our emotions, it kind of feels like our head's underwater. Or, when, or when, when, when in the end, it's actually friends that break your heart. Or those times you just simply feel misunderstood. Like nobody gets us. You maybe even feel marginalized, pushed, sort of pushed to the edges. The pain and separation and longing that the trials of life bring, they're still real. Even though we know that if we're in Christ, they won't last. But that doesn't mean they don't hurt. And Jesus feels for you in that. He feels for you in that. Far from watching our distress from a safe distance, Jesus is the Lord who inhabits our suffering. He's the one who chose to enter into human history knowing full well it would guarantee him a lifetime of pain. Jesus is the one that in the Old Testament they called, they prophesied he'd be a man of sorrows. He's the suffering servant. He's the one who came explicitly not for the healthy but for the sick. And all throughout the Gospels, Jesus, he's moved with compassion for the hurt and for the downcast and for those suffering. It's a compassion that goes far beyond sympathy or hollow promises of thoughts and prayer. Rather, Jesus takes the agony of pain and suffering on himself when he actually goes to the cross for us. See, the point is this. When we suffer, the very heart of Christ is drawn out toward us. Why? It's because he's been there. He knows what it's like. He's experienced it, and he hates that we're facing it. And so his desire is for you not to face it alone, to not go through suffering alone, which is why our pain and our suffering is what ignites God all the more toward embrace. I'm sure there's not a, I'm sure there's not a few of you here who've experienced that for yourself, uh, something I've come to experience in my own life, um, something I've only kind of you know, recently started talking about uh, with, with Village Church. Um, uh, just over a year ago, year and a half, uh, my marriage came to a sudden abrupt end. Didn't see it coming. And 
like in moments like those and, and, and so many more, what else is there to do but just cry out to God, right? To just sort of lay yourself at his feet. It's those times in life where God's poetry takes on a unique role as God tenderly upheld me through his word or when Jesus drew near to me through his people, right? And it's not to say that my beloved friends outside of church haven't been an immense blessing to me. Absolutely, they have. I love them dearly. But particularly in those early days, there's a few families at Village, my community group, that really caught me in those early days, saved me from going off the deep end, just gave me room and permission to be, all the while very, very gently leading me back to Jesus. And, you know, even actually, like you guys here, Providence, you played a role in this. As Mikey already mentioned, um, you brought me in at Christmas time. And you ministered to me uh, through, through singing, through, through food, through fellowship. Like that's part of what the body of Christ does for one another. We help to experience the closeness, the gentleness of Jesus in our suffering through one another. Now, I want to be careful, though, how I communicate this, because I don't want this to sound like um, Christians have the monopoly on empathy, that like, we're the only ones that, that understand you know, loving people well or, or understand great. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is this. Jesus is an image of humanity par excellence, right? He is and was the perfect human. And the big idea of the Bible is that God's remaking us to become more and more like Jesus, to be remade in Jesus' image. And so, since Jesus rushes towards others in their pain and suffering, it's natural that this would become the normal Christian response as well to pain and to suffering. It's like how this uh, precious psalm puts it, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So many Christians, myself included, have experienced this personally. A Lord who comes to us gentle and lowly. That's Christ's heart for sufferers. Now, it might surprise you though, this is the same heart that Christ also has for sinners. That is far from recoiling When we sin, the very heart of Christ is drawn out to us, and it brings us to our second point for this morning. It's Christ's heart for sinners. Um, I can remember my first big bug encounter, okay? So over over in Canada, we, um, oh, it's not not like here in Australia. Most insects are barely bigger than your your, your pinky nail. But I remember one time, we uh, grew up in a property, there's this pond um, down below on the back end of the property, and there's this giant beetle just beetling along the, the, I don't know, what do they do? Uh, along the, the, the banks of, of, of this pond. And so obviously, naturally, my, my, my brother and I, we dare each other to, 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 to touch it, right? And so we, we, we kind of, you know, with shaky finger, getting closer and closer and closer. And you finally make contact with the inky black exoskeleton of this beetle, and you kind of shriek, and you recoil, and you, you, draw, you, draw, you draw your hand back, and then you, know, sh- you, know, you, you run away, never to visit the pond again uh, for, the re- for the rest of summer. Um, you know, I wonder, though, is that not sometimes how we're tempted to view God when we sin? Imagining that God's own posture towards us when we stuff up is like Boy Mitchell touching a beetle. Face screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact, quickly withdrawing, you know, never to return for another year, <laughs> whatever it might be. That's why we need a Bible. Like, honestly, that's why we need a Bible, because our natural intuition can only conjure up a God like us. But the Jesus of Scripture, the God of the Bible, could not be further from reality, that reality. And there's no better place to see this in action. In a very touching moment, when Jesus is out for dinner with some religious folks, it's one of my favorite stories in in the Gospels, in bursts the woman of the night, she falls at Jesus' feet, weeping. 
This one uh, can be found in, in, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 7. So it's worth, again, fl- flicking back a bit to Luke chapter 7. Not only is the story itself beautiful, but it sits, it's, it's helpful as well because it sits within a series of stories where unlikely people come to Jesus in faith. Now, so let's set, let's set the scene. Uh, Jesus, he's invited in for dinner at Simon's house. Simon is a Pharisee, uh, basically, uh, you might say, conservative religious leader. And Jesus, he takes a seat at the table, but sort of like, like reclines in that beautiful Middle Eastern fashion way of eating, uh, and, he, and, and he begins to eat. But then it happens. Suddenly, a woman rushes in, and all eyes are on Jesus, and they're staring at his feet, and Jesus looks back because he can see this woman standing behind him. We don't know who she is, but clearly from a cultural, thinking just cultural perspective, uh, you would say she doesn't belong there. She's staring at Jesus' feet. She's cradling a small jar in her hands. Her tears are flowing. She drops to her knees, and leaning over, she lets her tears fall over Jesus' feet. And then she wipes his feet with her hair and uses the perfume to anoint his feet. Angry murmurs erupt from the men around the table because they know that this woman had a reputation that was known. It was inappropriate even to speak openly about it. She was simply called the sinner, right? And we, we, we might not know exactly the sort of connotations that that, that that raised, but everyone around the dinner table that night knew what was packed into that tiny title, which is why everyone around the table was mortified by this woman. Everyone, it seems, except Jesus. Here's the thing we often miss in this story. Some of you might be a bit more clued into it, though, depending on your own uh, family of origin. In a shame on our culture, all the people around the table, they're looking at Jesus expecting an embarrassed apology. So they're expecting, they're expecting Jesus to shame this woman's actions while elevating his own honor, separating himself from this woman. So they want, okay, they want Jesus to say something like, gentlemen, believe me when I say, I'm embarrassed by all of this. This is not the kind of situation that I'm comfortable with, so please don't judge me. This isn't on me. This woman ought to learn her place. And then with a sort of wave of his hand, he could have had her thrown out. But he doesn't. He flips a script. Turning to Simon, Jesus tells a parable that places him, this conservative religious dude, in the same firing line that he wants to place this woman. And then turning to the woman, Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here's what I'm driving at. I think for us, our own personal experiences often feed into this fear that if the full truth of us was known, we'd be rejected. Those that we love, if they truly knew what we were like deep down inside, sort of thoughts that run through our head, um, they would push us away. Is that, fair, is that fair to say? I, I feel like um, for anxious creatures like us, we are limitless in our capacity to come up with reasons for why we should be cast out. And even when we run out of, you might say, rational reasons to be rejected, like specific failures or character flaws, we still then tend to hold onto a vague sense that given enough time, our loved ones will finally grow tired of us. Right? And then what's worse is some have, some have, have actually experienced that. Can I say, though, nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to the limitless, infinite love of Christ Jesus. See, the really cool thing about God is that his heart is not drained by our coming to him. It's actually the opposite. 
his heart is filled up all the more by our coming to him. It's as we go to him for fresh forgiveness, fresh comfort, fresh peace. This is what Christ lives for. This is what he loves to do. Christ's heart and ours is so in line that you could say, so close to ours, you could say that his joy and ours rises and falls together, right? Christ's joy and ours rises and falls together. So, for example, there's this English theologian, uh, Thomas Goodwin, he's writing back in like the 1600s, a little, a little while ago now, a few years. Um, in my opinion, he sums this up like no one else. And again, this is a quote from, from, from the book I mentioned, Gentle Willie. Uh, it's a bit yieldy English, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll get through it together. So he says something like this. The greater the misery is, the more is the pity when the party is beloved. Now, of all miseries, sin is the greatest. And Christ, loving your persons and hating only the sin, his hatred shall all fall, and that only upon the sin, to free you of it by its ruin and destruction. But his affections shall be the more drawn out to you. And this as much when you lie under sin as under any other affliction. Therefore, he says, therefore fear not. Fear not. So what old mate's saying here is, he's saying, if you have faith in Jesus, then you are part of Christ's very body. And as such, Jesus loves you as his very self. Therefore, your sins draw out Christ's deepest heart, his compassion, his pity. Jesus is on our side. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. Right? He hates sin, but he loves you. And I think a good way to understand this is to consider how it is you feel when a loved one of yours, maybe, let's say, ends up in hospital. Say, say you, you go to visit them. Say it's um, you know, not just the flu, but maybe something worse. There's, there's some sort of illness or even worse, yet, a disease that's ravaging your body. Are you going to go into the hospital and be angry with them? Are you going to hate them because of their disease? Far from it. Rather, aren't you going to go in there and love them all the more? In fact, won't your love for them cause you to curse the disease that's running through the body, looking for any solution or treatment that might sort of root it out and, 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 and get rid of it once and for all? All the while, you would double down on your affirmation of intense love and compassion for that person. So it is with Christ. When we sin, the very heart of Christ is drawn out to us all the more, cursing the sin, but loving the sinner. In fact, as you might know, Jesus, he loved us to the point of taking the curse of sin upon himself when he went to the cross for us. He took our disease, nailed it to the cross, so that we might live forever in the eternal love of God our Father, forever experiencing the joy and intimacy that comes from perfect community with God and with one another. Um, in other words, it's love without fear, isn't it? God is offering us love without fear. Here's another way you could say this. The good news of the gospel is that because of Jesus, God is always smiling at us. Because of Jesus, what he's done on the cross, God, when he sees you, if your life is in Christ, God is always smiling at you. So as we wrap up, now let's pull together a few of these strands and then we'll, we'll, we'll finish here. Uh, the first thing is, um, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I think these stories help give us an accurate portrait, not only of Jesus and how he moves towards us, but it's also a picture of what it looks like for us to come to him. So for us to move 
toward Jesus. Because what you have in both stories is you have people who come to Jesus just as they are, and what they find is rest for their souls. See, for Mary, the, 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 the rest that her soul needed was hope and comfort in the face of death, yeah? For the woman who knelt at Jesus' feet, the rest that her soul needed was forgiveness, but also restoration in the face of sin and shame. Which is exactly what Christ invites us to do in this passage. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. And so, listen, look, if you, if you are someone here, if you are weighed down by life, you're struggling to get out of the bed in the morning, put one foot in front of the other, if you're experiencing the sort of endless churning of existential dread, then congratulations. You have just qualified for fellowship with Jesus. Literally, the only criteria that Jesus is looking for is an open heart. That's all it takes. Come to him. Yeah? So I can leave you with one thing and then peace out of here for the next year. Now, hopefully it's sooner. Jesus is closer to you today, right now, than he was to the sinners and sufferers that he spoke to and touched in his earthly ministry. And the reason for that is because now Christ gives us his very spirit. Christ's spirit envelops our own heart, envelops his people with an embrace nearer and tighter than any physical embrace could have done 2,000 odd years ago. So if that's something that is, you know, sparking for you, I know that I you know, come chat to me and I think we're having food after this, come chat to me around, around uh, lunch or, you know, grab Mike or anyone who's sitting next to you. I reckon they'd love to chat to you more about that. Um, but then secondly, if you're someone here today as a Christian, I think the application is simple, but it'll take all of us working together to pull it off. And what I mean is the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers has to become our very own heart our very own heart, personally, individually, but also as a community. So I was sharing with my community group, our small groups the other week, how strangely, maybe, one of my favorite things about my job is sort of those moments where people trust you with their most vulnerable or emotional moments, right? So not a few times I've uh, answered my phone and someone on the other end is, is uh, weeping so hard they can't even get a word out. Or I'll wake up to uh, a text message from a friend sharing some, some tragic news. Or I remember even, um, uh, well, it was a couple of months ago now, uh, I, was, I, was, I was coming out of a uh, festival, waiting on the, on the street corner with, um, uh, so th there's me and, and, and somebody else, we're meeting, uh, we're waiting for an Uber, and she just started opening up about some struggles she was going through and some really complex grief uh, in her life. And all those moments more, I just, I just burst into tears. I just burst into tears. Now, I, I honestly, I don't want to give the impression that I actually know what I'm doing, I get this right all the time. I shy away from people's pain as much as I move toward it, but on those rare occasions when I am, thankfully, more in step with God's spirit, you just know that these are holy moments. All your senses are sharpened as you trust in Christ's Holy Spirit to do what he promises to do, to draw near and do what he does best, which is comfort his people. As you allow the tears of another to become your very own tears, Another example, um, personally, I remember a couple years ago now opening up to a close friend about some sin that I'd been holding on to for quite some time. And after, uh, he's a beautiful soul, after a long and gentle conversation, we get to the end, he says to me, is there anything else you want to say? Anything else you want to say? Now, at this point, I had said it all, but 
His question, such a simple question, did two things at once. First, it understood my human tendency to share some things while not revealing everything. So it was an invitation to really actually deal with my mess then and, and, then and there. But then secondly, this invitation to keep speaking was this subtle message that said, hey, I'm still here, I'm still listening, I still love you, you haven't changed my mind on that. And that, friends, you know, Providence, it's kind of community that we want to constantly trust Jesus to be cultivating here at, at Providence, at Village Church, churches across Brisbane, around the world. It's the kind of church community that allows the tears and tangles of life to draw us nearer to one another, to, to draw us toward embrace, a community that really gets its hands dirty as together we take on Christ's heart for sinners and sufferers, and we allow Christ's heart to become our heart as we are enveloped into his. Let me pray for those things right now, and then um, I'll hand over to the music team. Uh, please join with me in prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we admit that we're probably more sinful and selfish than we would care to admit, and yet we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we'd ever dare hope to believe or to imagine. Uh, these things that we're looking at God, are not easy. Uh, they definitely touch us at the very core of, of, of who we are. And so I pray, Lord, that you would be sending your spirit to minister to us in our need, uh, specifically. I pray, Lord, that we here who are suffering might come to know experientially what it's like to be comforted by your loving hand through your people. For us, Lord, who are maybe caught up in sin or just weighed down by sin or even experiencing the effects of the brokenness of sin against us, I pray, Lord, that you would help to bring um, not only healing but also restoration in that, that you would um, free us up from that sin and also restore us from the effects of sin as well. But in all these things, Lord, I ask that you'd be forming in us a heart that takes on Christ's very own heart. And really, I pray, Lord, that we would find ourselves enveloped in your heart this morning. Uh, not just for ourselves, but for our friends and our loved ones as well, that we would help invite others into the loving embrace that you're offering us in Christ Jesus. Uh, this one who comes to us uh, with arms wide open. And we pray all these things in his beautiful name. Amen.